baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you on this Sunday morning, and we are pleased to be joined by John Erlinghauser. He is Director of Advocacy and Community Outreach for AARP Connecticut. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Aaron, and thanks for having me on again. We have a conversation coming up about your legislative agenda for 2022. Of course, the session begins on February 9th. But first, John, I wanted to ask you about this updated guidance from the state regarding nursing homes and accepting COVID-positive patients from hospitals. What is your understanding of the guidance? Well, I mean, you know, obviously that the guidance was intended to alleviate the strain that's being put on emergency rooms at hospitals. And uh, because of the current wave of uh, the Omicron COVID uh, virus. So basically, you know, when you couple that guidance along with his um, recommendation that all staff get boosted by February 11th, um, we think it's actually probably a good thing. Um, You know, as I say, we we strongly encourage all long-term care facilities to provide booster shots for their staff and residents. So, um, you know, part of the issue here is these facilities that don't comply with that particular executive order are going to face up to $20,000 civil penalty every day they're out of compliance. Um, So, you know, the good news is 80% of uh, residents in nursing homes are boosted, and that's, uh, but the the rate is significantly lower for staff. So, um, So since the mandate went into effect on boosters, or excuse me, on vaccines uh, in November, it was less than 20% for staff. So, you know, we think it's, 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 it's okay. It's an important step, um, but we need to do some things that, that address the overall situation with nursing homes. Um, not only just frankly with COVID, um, but uh, we understand why the governor came down with the executive order that he did, uh, particularly in this environment. What is your understanding of the staffing situation at nursing homes with COVID-fueled shortages affecting pretty much every sector of the economy? Yeah, I mean, you know, frankly, Aaron, that's, that's an issue not only for nursing homes, but for all kinds of healthcare facilities. So it's, it's, a, it's a big issue. But, you know, what we also have to do is ensure that we come up with these, um, you know, nursing home compact, excuse me, staffing compacts with other states so we can bring in the trained staff, um, you know, that can alleviate the stress from all the uh, staff that are getting sick with COVID and and such that are creating these shortages, you know, but, but if we get more staff getting their shots and boosters, um, we can alleviate that situation, which is why we, we kind of are, are happy to see what the governor is doing in that regard. Now, one of your legislative wins last year was getting improvements to electronic communications in nursing homes so residents can be in contact with their loved ones. What's on your agenda for this session? Right. So a lot of, lot of things we have to, to work on. 
Um, but, you know, what we have to do, you know, so because of the pandemic and because of the various pieces of legislation that were passed at the federal level to address the pandemic, you know, there's a significant infuse of, infuse of money coming into the states uh, to deal with things like the nursing home crisis. So, you know, we want the state to really, you know, come up with strengthen, you know, uh, workforce policies uh, to support family caregivers as, as a first step. But specifically on nursing homes, we want to make sure that, you know, a lot, a lot of the money that's coming in for nursing homes goes towards actual direct care of patients as opposed to um, administrative and other costs, because that's what it's really intended to. So, you know, we want to make sure that that is what transpires. You know, if you look at other states, um, you know, there have been uh, greater direct patient care ratios, especially in this area. So what we have to do is adapt policies that encourage more of that funding to go towards the care of patients and residents of nursing homes and not into extraneous uh, non-care uh, expenses, expenses of the nursing home. So that's going to be a, a huge thing that we have to work for. And, uh, you know, we, we just want to continue, though, to have to create a, a long-term care system in the state of Connecticut that doesn't require folks to get the care they need only in a, in a uh, residential facility. There should be more home and community-based cares um, programs that will encourage folks if they can and are able to stay in their home uh, to be able to stay in their home. And as I say, that also goes along with supporting, you know, family and relative caregivers as well. So we have a full plate as always on our agenda when it comes to nursing homes and to long-term care. And as I say, there's no reason why we can't get some of these things done, particularly with the big infusion of, uh, of the federal dollars that have come in through uh, the recent uh, pieces of legislation at the federal level. Talk to me about how much latitude the state has in telling nursing homes how they are to use that federal money. Well, I mean, they, they certainly could do it through legislation. And, uh, you know, we should we should create create a, a level uh, a playing field. But we also need to ensure that, as I say, you know, we're improving direct care. We're improving staffing to patient ratios. Um, the state certainly isn't within their right to be able to create uh, policies that encourage, you know, those things to be better than than what what they are. So, you know, like I said, um, they're having a positive effect with similar policies in New York, New Jersey, and other states. So we have to do the same thing here in Connecticut. Um, we have an older population. A lot of people are are, are continuing to enter into the long term care system. And we need to make those changes at the state level uh, to, to improve the care that those folks are getting. We didn't we didn't fight for additional federal dollars at, uh, to come into the state of Connecticut into the long term term care system to not then be used to take care of the, the, the residents of, of long term care facilities and those who are getting care in a home and community based setting. So it's, it's just that simple for us there. And I, I know we get a lot of opposition from the nursing home industry, but, you know, we have to do what's right by the folks that are being cared for in those facilities. We need to have successful nursing homes and, and long-term care facilities, but we also have to ensure that folks are getting the care that they need and deserve, and the funding is going towards that direct care. Explain some of the other alternatives to residential care facilities. 
Well, I mean, you know, there's there's certainly the home care program for the elders, a state-funded program that allows people to uh, get care and get funding for care in a home and community-based setting based on what their functional limitations are as opposed to um, what their financial situation is. I mean, there are certain um, uh, income le le limits that are associated with the program, but certainly, uh, you know, it is a great alternative. I know for one, my mother received care on the Connecticut Home Care Program for the elderly, and that uh, resulted, she had Alzheimer's, that resulted her in getting uh, several hours a week in a direct care at home, as well as, um, you know, five and a half days spent at an adult daycare facility. So, you know, there are lots of, of ways through that program and other programs uh, that exist where we can uh, continue to uh, make improvement, right? And there have been over the years, significant uh, cuts to those programs, but over the uh, starting last year, and we're gonna hope to continue to increase access to those programs, even beyond the levels that existed prior to the cuts several years back. So, so that's one of the main programs that we're gonna, we're gonna focus on. Um, and as I say, we work very closely with the state long-term care ombudsman, Marae Painter, um, on uh, those programs, and uh, we're going to continue to do that. So we're hopeful. In education, there's the concept of money follows the person. Does that apply in elder care too? Well, so it, it, there is, uh, we have money follows the per person in, in the state of Connecticut through, uh, so basically it, it is a, a federal program where, you know, if you spend a certain amount of time in a nursing home and, uh, under Medicaid, you can then uh, spend that time in a home and uh, back in a home and community-based setting. It's not a perfect program and a lot of folks point to it. That's why the better alternative many times is the home care program for the elders on a state-funded level to keep people from ever having to go into that institutionalized care as opposed to um, you know, the, the alternative. So that, that's, that's one of the benefits of the home care program as opposed to the money follows the person program because that, that generally uh, is a little more restrictive. And sometimes, you know, once somebody enters the system, um, the long-term care system at a, at a uh, residential care setting, they're not able to um, get back out of it because sometimes their, their health goes down to a point where they wouldn't be able to function back in a residential uh, community-based setting, excuse me, as opposed to residential. If someone is listening to this and is thinking about maybe their, their older mother or father and thinking about long-term care and in, in they need something, but I'm not exactly sure what. Where should someone start? Well, I would say the, the best place usually to start is by contacting your the local area agencies on aging in, in your particular part of the state. So that would be the best place to start is the area agency on aging. We are talking to John Erlinghauser. He is Director of Advocacy and Community Outreach for AARP Connecticut. You also have on your legislative agenda this session prescription drug affordability. Tell us, yeah, it, it I mean, seems there has been some progress made, but it, there's always room for more. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, we, you know, we're always working on doing something with uh, prescription drugs because, um, you know, prescription drugs are rising at a rate that's so much greater than the rate of inflation. And certainly inflation is going up um, uh, at record amounts right now, but, but the cost of drugs is going up even higher. And, you know, we don't want to have people be in a place to have to choose between buying food or paying their bills. Um, and, you know, we need prescriptions to stay healthy. So, you know, right now 
people in, in this uh, Americans in general are paying more than three times what people in other countries are paying for the same medications. So what we'd like to see is what we would call a prescription drug affordability board. So it would be an independent body established by the state, kind of evaluate drug prices, set limits on how certain uh, payers like insurance companies and state agencies pay for these drugs. And, and basically, Aaron, how it would work is, you know, the board would gather information about brand name drugs and generic drugs sold in the state. If those uh, price of those drugs exceeded a threshold, um, say, for example, more than 10% in a 12-month period, you know, the board would have the authority to conduct an affordability review. And uh, the review would allow for public input, stakeholder uh, guidance, and other things. So the board determines the drug's price is really excessive. And, and you know, uh, they would be able to create access issues for consumers. The board would have the authority to kind of set up a payment limit on the upper side. And uh, it would also set a ceiling for what certain payers could pay for the drug. So, you know, this is an important step. I mean, you know, I know we get a lot of pushback from the pharmaceutical industry, um, but we certainly think it's worth something trying. You know, we've, we've been interested in this for a while and uh, we're going to push very hard for it. I mean, it may be difficult in a short session, but, you know, that's one of the things that we're doing here at the state level to address uh, prescription drug affordability. Is this a concept that has been adopted elsewhere or would this be something new? It's, it's been, it's been done in other States. I don't know. I can't recall the ones off the top of my head, but it has been done in other States. So, uh, you know, we think it's something that we should do here in Connecticut. Um, and, uh, we see it working in other States as well. So. There seemed to be a, a trend for a time of seniors heading to, to Canada to access cheaper prescription drugs. Is that still something that happens? Well, I mean, so here, here's the thing. Uh, and during the previous federal administration, they uh, made it permissive for states to enact laws that allowed for the importation of prescription drugs. The problem right now is uh, the Canadian government has kind of stepped in in that. And, 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 and you know, Aaron, quite honestly, that's never been a solution or a panacea to solving this problem. In all honesty, at best, it was a, a tactic that was used to kind of put some downward pressure on the pharmaceutical industry. So, um, you know, I'm sure there are folks that are doing it at the border, but, you know, in a large scale way, um, you know, which several states, including Connecticut, were looking at over the last several years, um, it's really not as practical at this point in time because of actions that are being taken, you know, by the other governments, primarily Canada. It seems that COVID restrictions at the border probably helped to, to clamp down on that as well. In the yeah, last couple absolutely. Of years. I mean, you know, COVID restrictions have had an impact on everything, um, you know, in terms of the supply chain for consumer goods and, and, and certainly for prescriptions as well. Now also talk of tax cuts at the state Capitol as we approach the start <laughs> of the session. And it seems everyone has a tax or two. They would like to reduce or eliminate the most. Uh, where does AARP stand? Well, you know, so, I mean, we certainly think there has to be something done on the property tax side. At least that's, you know, what we're encouraging legislators to do, um, you know, because as I say, it is a, a very um, regressive tax. Unfortunately, municipalities rely on it for their primary source of funding things, in particular education. Um, but what we want to make sure is the state tries to address 
property tax form in a fair and equitable way. So we don't get into a place where, you know, it becomes old versus young, you know, where, where we're cutting education for young families um, to, in order to, um, you know, subsidize taxpayers who are older, who, you know, already took advantage of those services at an earlier time. But at the same time, you know, we, we're, we're encouraging folks to be able to live and stay in their home. So we have to make sure we we find an equitable way of getting that property tax relief to those that actually need it and uh, or deserve it. And so, you know, we, we got to really come up with a, an equitable way. So that's the area we think that the state should work on property tax reform. Um, you know, right now, the way we fund education in the state of Connecticut, uh, you know, through primarily the property taxes is a really regressive way of doing it. And it kind of sets up that dynamic, you know, of, uh, you know, I don't have kids in the school, you know, uh, therefore I shouldn't have to pay the same amount as you. And, and it shouldn't be that way because we have to adequately fund education. We need good, strong public schools, but we also need to be able to have people be able to, you know, live and, and stay in their homes and not be priced out of them just because they reach a certain age and they end up on a fixed income. So, um, you know, we're going to we're going to work very closely with the chairs of the finance committee and others to, to go through all the various tax proposals to make sure whatever relief we, we provide, you know, is targeted to those who most most need it. And it's done in that equitable way. The governor and others have talked about expanding the property tax credit on the state income tax. Do you see that as the appropriate vehicle or do you see something else? Well, I mean, you know, Aaron, that was a very popular thing. It was passed back er, er, in the 90s initially. Um, it was more universal. And, and back, you know, I know there are some criticisms of it, uh, some folks, because they say, you know, the property tax credit doesn't reach renters, while on the other hand, it does uh, kind of level the playing field when you talk about property tax on motor vehicles. Because, you know, if you own a motor vehicle and you pay property tax on it, you know, you're eligible for up to whatever, under the old proposal, you were eligible for up to at $1.500 and then $250 off of your, you know, your income tax for that tax on, on, on automobiles. Um, but, you know, others will say it's just, you know, we should be targeting the tax more at those in the low and moderate incomes rather than, you know, giving that tax flat across the board. So, you know, it's something that we'll, we'll certainly look at. I know it's certainly very popular. Um, and I know, uh, you know, that is something I believe the, the administration is looking at. And I know some are also looking at sales tax um, as a way to, to provide tax cuts. And some are looking at increasing the earned income tax credit. Um, and that's certainly something we've supported in the past. Um, so, you know, we, we just want to make sure that if we're going to do tax reform of any kind, be it property tax or, or others, that it does get to those who most need and deserve that that relief. Now, when it comes to tax relief, there are also programs already in effect, especially for seniors, that they should be taking advantage of at the state level and at the local level when it comes to, to property tax relief, correct? Yeah, I mean, at the local level, so the state allows um, municipal uh, municipalities to provide property tax relief to seniors. Now, the problem with that is, is that is not reimbursable by the state of Connecticut. So if the town decides to give seniors tax relief um, at the local level, you know, that is bared out by everybody else within the tax base of the town. 
And so the town has to actually create a program in order to do that. Not every town does. A good number of them do. So I, I would encourage folks to check as to whether or not the town they live in has municipal property tax relief for, for, for senior citizens. Um, so, you know, it's important to make sure you know, and as I say, a good number of folks um, based on their income are still eligible for uh, that property tax credit. I, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it's about $250 um, up to that. So, you know, folks should certainly look into that as well. Um, but uh, there is certainly the need for more relief and more equity in terms of how we do these various ways of taxing. And, and we want to encourage state the state to do that. We, we would encourage municipalities to take those uh, ordinances up to provide that relief if, if they don't already do it. All right. And we're going to combine the uh, two remaining items on your legislative agenda that you list, fair and affordable utilities and telecommunications. Tell us what you would like done in those realms. Well, you know, we're certainly um, two areas on uh, electric very quickly. So last year, we passed legislation on third-party electric suppliers again that um, eliminated all cancellation fees on third-party electric suppliers. That was one of the major components of that piece of legislation that we passed. It also eliminated all of the grandfathered-in variable rate contracts. Believe it or not, we passed the ban on variable rate electric contracts in 2015, there were still 25,000 at least customers who are still on a grandfathered and variable rate, almost all of them, if not all of them, paying a significantly higher rate than the standard service, even with today's rate increase of, you know, that just went into effect in January. And so that those folks' contracts as of July 1 of this year, 2022, are going to be uh, eliminated. And they're going to be put into a fixed rate contract. Now, folks are going to have to check their bills to make sure they're not in a fixed rate paying more than standard service, but at least they're not going to be continually enrolled in those variable rate contracts. But the other thing that happened that was positive, I'll mention, is we uh, gave more authority for Pura to review third-party electric supplier offerings to make sure that there is a value and there is the, the contract has value and it's in the best interest of of ratepayers in Connecticut. The thing we didn't get was a ban on auto renewing all contracts. We, we th- you know, if you don't pay attention to your contract, when it expires, you get renewed automatically into a new contract. And almost always it's at a rate higher than what standard services. So what we're asking legislators to do is say, listen, if you're gonna allow companies to renew a customer automatically at the end of their contract into a new contract, it should be at or below what the current standard rate is. We think that's only fair. Um, so that's that's one of the big things. We're also going to work very closely on telecommunications, particularly around broadband and high-speed internet expansion. We passed legislation in 2021 that will create a system to map out where we lack high-speed internet in the state of Connecticut. And there's a lot of money coming into Connecticut this year. We want to make uh, make sure that it was all part of the um, bipartisan infrastructure deal that was passed a couple of months ago. We want to make sure that that money is directed in such a way that the build out happens in places where it's most needed and is done equitably. So we're going to have to work with the legislature to make sure that that funding goes to the right places. Um, and we're also going to work very hard to make sure that folks in the state of Connecticut who are on low and moderate incomes realize there is a new benefit that was part of that infrastructure act that will provide up to $30 a month 
for individuals to pay for high-speed internet. So we have a lot to do as a, when it comes to electricity and, and telecommunications, and we're going to continue to do it. He is John Erlinghauser, Director of Advocacy and Community Outreach for AARP Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks, Aaron, and it's always a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.